Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a beer side chat. Lessons More energy. In virtual production. More energy. Hello, everyone. <laughs> we were going to play the Space Jam theme just to make sure there was good energy, but uh, went with lo-fi elevator beats. I think it worked. It's got like an appropriate Monday meeting. Everybody like, get up. It's time to jam now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Welcome, everyone. Hope you're having a good Monday at South By. This is our beer side chat, lessons in virtual production. The uh, The main goal of this was actually to just get an excuse to have a beer sponsor for a talk. And while we didn't get one for the rest of the audience, we were able to get them for ourselves. So <laughs> just want to thank you guys for being here. And uh, <laughs> cheers for coming to 1130 Talk. Thank you, guys. Mm. Mark our words. Mark my words. By next year, we'll have a sponsor for the whole event for y'all, okay? In the meantime, we have third floor beer koozies on the chairs, so go ahead and take some of that home. <laughs> All right. So I guess to begin this, I just want to explain that the goal of this talk is, above all, to just have a candid and maybe unfiltered conversation about the state of the industry and for of what's going on in virtual production. So I think the goal is that we're all here to speak as individuals, not necessarily representing the companies that we work for. And because of that, our opinions are those to change by the minute and by the project. But for right now, we want this to be basically an honest and uh, constructive, if not uh, a bit adversarial conversation about what's working and what uh, could still be improved upon in the virtual production space. Raw and unfiltered like an expensive juice. Yeah. <laughs> So to begin with, let's have actually show of hands, just to understand who in the audience is from the VFX side. All right. Okay. Previs? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. How about gaming? All right. Uh XR. Okay. Oh, okay. We got more of this side. Yeah. Any uh directors, cinematographers, boots on the ground? Nice. Ooh, nice. Excellent, excellent. So we'll try to curate some of the uh, talk towards y'all. But to begin with, I just wanted to introduce our speakers and then we'll go into our uh, video. But what's really cool, I think, about virtual production is that you always end up working with people who come from completely different backgrounds. There's no, you know, there's no university until, I guess, now that's going to be focused on virtual production. And because of that, you end up working with people from gaming, from computer dev, from traditional film, uh, cinematography. And so I'd love to hear uh, for our panelists, who are you and uh, what was your uh, route to finding where you are in virtual production? Kat? Oh, damn. I should have sat at the end. Um, hi, everybody. My name's uh, Kat Harris. I found my way into virtual production by uh, working in the XR industry first. So I worked at Microsoft for about six and a half years in the HoloLens team, kind of the cloud team, went all over there and then uh, worked with Magnopus and then realized, oh, they do a lot of cool shit. I want to work with them moved over, and then have been working in virtual production for the last three years now, and uh, have loved it, uh, very much brought all the tech skills for tools and like the VR side into just working in Unreal Engine and then working with cinematographers and then on the creative side with previs, tech biz, the whole shebang. All right. Um, I'm Catherine Brillhart. I am a cinematographer and virtual production supervisor, and my pathway into virtual production was through 
cinematography and visual effects. So my first, like my key passion is cinematography. And uh, as I was like learning more about how to make the images that I wanted to, I discovered traditional visual effects and fell in love with them and built a parallel career for myself in post visual effects and have worked with several different VFX companies in Los Angeles. And through those experiences, um, I was kind of always involved in like the futuristic tech that was kind of coming out on my timeline, which would have been developments in VR or going from stereoscopic projection into LED walls and like even uh, stereos, like 3D LED panels and things. So I've always been kind of on the bleeding edge and some of the opportunities that I had as I progressed my career in visual effects let me be in the room with the ASC and the VES and some trade organizations that were having these closed doors conversations around um, the first avatar, their process, um, Tintin, uh, Planet of the Apes, some of these key films that were using motion capture and performance capture, volumetric capture and visualization that wasn't real time at the time, but it was moving toward that track. So when I got um, more involved literally in virtual production around like 2017, where my my jobs and the projects I were taking were more in that vein, um, I decided to enter through volumetric capture for several years and then kind of started positioning more into visualization because as a cinematographer, it gave me more of a technical background in VAD, but then it gave me it got me closer to story working through a virtual camera and those tools. Um, and then my path from there led me into supervising like that department as that department started forming in the last four years, I've been able to work client side with directors and producers and DPs um, to help make sure that all of these different techniques that you could apply to a project are kind of within a scope that makes sense for them or matches their vision. And so that's kind of been my, my journey into VProd. Nice. Uh, my name is Marcus Vestich. I'm uh, CTO of The Third Floor. Uh, for me, it's similar to Cat. I started exploring XR space and was playing around with Perception Neuron when it was still being uh, kickstarted and you know, fell in love with what was possible with the DK1 and DK2. And so thought I was in, you know, hard in the trajectory of working in the VR space. And uh, as a startup, I was working with pivoted into 360 captures. Uh, I moved over to the visual effects side and struggled to find where my interests and where my passion would get represented as I'm working with teams of compositors, teams of lighters, doing a lot of interesting things with simulations, but nothing was anywhere close to real time and it seemed impossible at the time. Uh, but I continued kind of pushing for where we could find use for game engines inside visual effects and then uh, transferred over to the deep end of it, which was working on the Lion King production and working on set and trying to build an entire uh, production that was completely CG using uh, film tools. And that was you know virtual production at the highest level. Um, it was a huge budget. And we had to find ways to try to make this more democratized and make this more available to other projects. So I worked on Call of the Wild, uh, worked on the one and only Ivan as well, and often try, trying to find ways to bring uh, the creatives into the fold and, and trying to find where uh, for a creative director or a cinematographer, a director, for their sensibilities to be able to relate to what we were trying to do on the CG side. I could feel how there was this huge gap of control 
when we would switch the production entirely over to VFX that voices were lost from the conversation. And virtual production felt at the time like the way towards keeping those people engaged through the process. Joined the third floor three and a half years ago to shepherd them towards like a more complete real-time transition. And uh, you know, third floor does virtual production as well. We've got some people from third floor in the audience here. And so it's been an interesting journey you know, for the past seven years, been trying to find exactly what where the solid ground is in this constantly moving landscape. All right. And uh, just a quick background for me. My name is Drew Diamond. I'm a VP lead at the third floor. Um, I came from, uh, basically, I went to film school at USC, uh, originally from Texas, and just quickly, basically, realized I could spend all the time I wanted with the director and on set if I just kept on learning the new technology and had to be the only person there who could be accountable for it. So suddenly uh, some marketing budgets would come our way and there needed to be a VR scene related to the short film we were doing. Okay, I'll oversee that. Suddenly we needed to do an AR uh, like co-collaboration uh, and have the piece from the VR exist on mobile. You get to learn a little bit about that. And this ended up leading me to uh, the Entertainment Technology Center, which is a think tank in Los Angeles where I'm a consultant. And eventually that led me to work at the Technicolor Experience Center where we did a bunch of real-time animation work and basically was a, a kind of a experimental R&D section for Technicolor and MPC to work before they launched Genesis, which actually Marcus and I got to meet on. And now I'm over at the third floor getting to see the bleeding edge of virtual production for film and TV. And what's really great is I have gone to basically work with all these people on different projects. And we get to see each other like once a year and just share war stories. And we want to share those with y'all today. So to begin with, let's uh, just do a quick video about what is virtual production. And <clears throat> the next video we're going to play, we're going to have Catherine walk us through. But I think one of the really important things is to stress that while most of us are working on AAA high budget productions, this is not something that's limited only to that. And by all means, we want to be able to touch on basically what's the premium package and let's call it like the, uh, the student level package in the sense that you always have an entry level that can be scaled to the production and to the budget. So with that, Catherine, I'll tee you up for your section. Sure. Thank you. So this footage, um, I decided to bring some footage from a short film that I'm directing uh, that super small budget, basically a, a local stage in Los Angeles wanted to fund a couple directors to help make some cinematic content for their stage. And they had a very small test stage, like 30 foot wall, you know, pole in the center of the room. So you really only had 20 feet off the wall. So we were very limited. But what I thought was cool was how we could preserve sort of a days of heaven or like a Verde style cinematic look in that space with very limited tools. And some of the things that you can see in here as examples are using strong foreground elements or maybe using a shed set piece that's only actually one or two walls to make it look like we're in a totally different environment. Um, some of the most challenging things in a space like that will be you know, hard daylight, but those were things that we were able to play around with for um, a relatively small independent budget and and I guess I just wanted to show you footage so that you could see an example of something that's possible because it's really hard right now online or just publicly to find examples of work that is not 
you know, triple A budget filmmaking or has a, an episodic level Mandalorian style budget. Um, yeah. I would say the most complicated thing about some of these scenes are the clouds. Um, those are all art directed very specifically. And the fire, which uh, could be very complicated if you start scoping out in, in 3D, you know, was actually very simple for this project. And we thought that we got a great look using 2D footage. Um, and if you, I love this because when you listen to the director's cut for Days of Heaven, which is what we were referencing on this project, um, it was two weeks of night shoots with gasoline and like everyone turned around on a crazy schedule. And we were able to prepare for this shoot it in about 20 minutes and get something that uh, like looked very photoreal. So that's just indie taste of what you can do. Thank you, Catherine. Which leads me to our first question of the day. So what the hell is virtual production? <laughs> so is this a technology? Is this going on an LED volume? Is this only using real-time game engine? What What is virtual production for you guys? Is it more than a pipeline? Well, I feel like it's where the virtual world and physical worlds meet through the use of game uh, game engines or real-time technology. What do you guys think? Yeah. I, Open I, this up. All right. <laughs> I, I also agree. I think a game engine or a real-time engine is an essential part of what we're trying to do with virtual production today. Obviously, virtual production predates that, but I think if we're trying to define that term terminology today, it really is trying to get interaction or engagement with your CG content on your stage. And so you do need tech. I also think that it is a lot to do with people. So uh, although that might not be the case in the future, and I've got opinions about that, right now virtual production is a lot about the people who have developed familiarity with those game engines and uh, the production pipeline, the production process, and having them present for solving problems related to CG content needing to be available on the stage. I feel like I, I need to disagree because you you – said you told me to <laughs> but i also agree <laughs> so i'm like yeah no yes uh real time definitely like at least now virtual production uses like that real timeness as a way to advertise like hey you should use this so you can see like changes update live and that's kind of the the major selling point that we use so yeah. And the videos seem to walk through a lot of the steps um, for an LED volume workflow, but there are other use cases too, like Simulcam. Um, you can take some of those steps that we saw in the video out of context and not go to a full LED wall. Mm -hmm. um, there are different ways that you can apply all of these techniques and workflows to a project. And I think as you start customizing it, that's where it gets really interesting. And I think... You know, it's kind of fun because since the Jungle Book and I guess Avatar in the Jungle Book, they're kind of proving that they're deconstructing what a live action film really is, right? So, you know, Avatar can be submitted to the Oscars in a live action category because it's not animated. It's performance capture. Um, and it means that in what we call or like what looks like an animated film you can actually have a physical presence with your actors and your camera so in avatar that would be what james cameron would say all of my actors did their own performance they own that the cinematographer or he would like shoot that film physically so it means that as a cinematographer that grew up 
only knowing film and like digital, I can say I could shoot a Pixar film. I could shoot a live action CG film. So it's kind of yeah. cool. Lion King. Magnopus also worked on that. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> I was like, I was just on Love, Death and Robots, like for the invaulted halls, which was like using very realistic humans, but it was completely mocap and like everything tried to look as photoreal as possible. So with like some art direction. So Dropping best kept secrets here. Uh, Pixar <laughs> uses a ton of mocap, by the way. Yeah. You guys might look at stylized animation and it's fully mocap actor driven performance. You might keep only 50, 60% of it, but they're trying to do that so that they can get a direct engagement with a lot of the performers. Okay, but I, I guess I have to ask. So, like years back when we were all working together and we're just using Motion Builder to have like a, a visualization of the mocap on stage, were we already doing virtual production? You know, is it is it the tools or is it kind of the mentality being used to basically take a bunch of different techno- uh, pieces from different industries and throw them together to see what sticks? I have a take. Okay. You could disagree with me. Hot take. I think it's just anachronistic. I think it's like looking at someone who's like, sending a letter on pigeon and being like early days of texting but texting is fundamentally like a different thing early days um, of tweeting come on yeah they're pigeon. tweeting thank like, you yeah <laughs> go ahead Catherine. Reference. you could disagree yeah well i mean i kind of i do kind of agree with what you're saying um but i'm losing what i was thinking that's okay that's what the drinks are here for just no that's great it actually brings us to our next uh, uh round which is yes We've been waiting for hot this. or not. Hot or not. Hot or yeah. not. <laughs> Welcome everybody. This is the game show now. If anyone needs to know what the buzzwords will be at the next uh, industry shindig, we're here to tell you what you should have as your hot opinion right now. Yes. And we've decided after like thirty minutes of deep discussion that green will be hot. Green will yes. be hot. Yeah. And red will be hot. I mean, sorry, <laughs> not not. <laughs> so green hot or hot? hot. They're so both hot. Up. Yeah, they're both hot. Is what hot, we've come up with. But this is the not one. <laughs> For me, red is hot. This is really tough, but we've decided. Green is hot. Yeah, so it's salsa verde and basic table salsa. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Which one's hot? hot? You guys know. Mild. With that said. (laughs) All right, guys. LED volumes. This year, 2023, hot or not? Ready? All right, so hot. Hot. Excellent. Despite closures and everything we're mm-hmm. still uh, seeing them in demand and with a queue that goes through the years can i have a uh the not hot side of this yes please uh building new stages and expecting them to be 100 percent booked with work is not hot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh so I, I think that we're going to see a lot of change to like ad hoc stages or like early discussions with the productions of what exactly they need Go yes ahead. exactly that was like the the things where they're like oh we're gonna film the entire movie on this stage it's like not hot not hot not hot that's the not hot version it's like you very much like should work with teams who have used it before who know like hey this scene that you want to film you shouldn't do it on this wall unless you want to change stuff and then we can work with the production team and like the art director and be like yes this will work on a volume next one pre-lights digital twins which also start being better at uh, giving layman's terms Having a digital version of the lighting equipment the gaffers and uh, team on the production will have, which means same lux values at the same distance, same radius throw, everything. Hot or not? So hot right now. So, so, hot. so hot. So hot. So hot. But I also want to add, <laughs> for all of the cinematographers and directors in the room and producers, it's also super hot to have a pre-light 
day or week or time week. before you shoot so that you can prep your virtual production team can prep along with your DP. So your department heads are prepared for you when you step on set, because I think that's something that people don't realize sometimes. And for a DP, that might mean that you need to rent the lenses a little bit. Please tell us your lens kits. Them, yes. Just please yes. tell us. Yes. Yeah, get them tuned. Like it just affects your, like your lens tuning schedule and all of that. So, well, and also if, when you guys do pre-lights, is the do you speak to the gaffer about what the point of that light is? Because let's say you go yes. are suddenly having to do a, a bounce with silks off of the roof. How are we doing that in Game Engine? Hey, give us the time to figure it out, and we'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But I, what I mean though is these are like the first. I have. When was the last time you had a gaffer meeting with the like engine TD? It's fair. I well, love doing that. <laughs> well, in the last we, production, yeah, we, we, we did, did do that. Exactly. So it, it made great. it very successful. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's the new piece, right? Which is the engine TD and the TA, the technical artist and the technical director are now sitting there with a 30-year veteran gaffer having to talk about what the quality of light is, why they use a Fresnel, why they're not buying it with how it looks right now in the engine. And then we show it to them at three frames per second and hope they're happy. <laughs> but but, uh, but like a positive side to it, though, is also, um, you know, a lot of people for LED wall specifically, they get kind of thrown into this. And so having the wall be a lighting tool plus all the other things, it's just good to give other professionals that lead up time to see and visualize also um, all the technical challenges that you're going to run into this into in the space. So if for any reason, even if they don't feel like it looks like the final product, it's like, but I know in advance of the shoot that I can't take these panels out to put a light there, but I could take these panels out or the ceiling doesn't hold this. So there's that tech viz half of it that, you know, yes. we love. Color pipeline. Color pipeline. Ooh. Three. Two. One. one. Go. I'm going to say, it's, yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit of that. <laughs> We have some friction points yeah, on color pipeline. Of, yeah. Yeah. Is it hot? It's certainly a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hot because it has to be. <laughs> yeah. It looks hot. Yeah. 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 It is it one of those things that we kind of jumped in before knowing what we're, you know, we were going to make it that if you said best practices or opportunities for standardization, you had to take a drink. Yes. But is this a kind of I an think issue? I'm, I'm going to take a drink to yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so opportunities for standardization. ACCG folks. for water. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what do we mean by pipeline woes? Like, give me the the layman's explain explanation. Well, we're just there. There's going to be strengths and weaknesses of any LED stage, and you're dealing with the fact that there is a specific uh, range of color that you're going to be get be able to get off of these LEDs, and you have to be able to consider some of that before before you go into shooting, but also after you're getting footage and expecting it to just directly live comp into a final frame. There's been some really good research papers that have come out in the last year and a half which are trying to solve this, but it's certainly a huge topic right now. And I think we're definitely looking for opportunities for standardization around how do we fix color issues that are happening. And you work a lot with the stage. I do so much color workflow stuff. Um, I, I love it because it's definitely part of cinematography and it affects, you know, you're doing that as a DP and figuring that out all the way through post with the post supervisor. But LED walls definitely add another level of complexity. Um, Especially if you do crazy Wild West things like shoot film. Yeah. Um, but basically, I would say as a virtual production supervisor, when I'm in that role, it means that I have to architect um, a color workflow that considers the camera sensor, the 
LED wall panel uh, product, the processors, the playback software impacts what I'm going to be able to do with the color workflow. Where do I put an additional tool in that workflow that a DP or a, a, their DIT or color science needs to interact with? Like, are they going to be interacting with my color workflow or am I going to be kind of autonomous? Um, and you know, once you add the physical lighting to uh, your LED wall, the perception of all of that changes. So you have to go in as a VP supervisor, knowing how to get to True North, how to communicate what True North is, how to document all of that for the visual effects team, and then have tools in place to document every change that's happened technically per shot, scene, and take. So that all that data goes back to visual effects. And then the fun, actually the, the fun layer that's really stressful at the time, but I look back at it and I'm like, yeah, that was cool. That was my Bronco for the day. It was like the uncomfortable conversation where the director's like, that doesn't look like it did yesterday. <laughs> and even if it's technically accurate, uh, walking straight through that conversation and doing all of the things that you can to test your system and help everyone's perception of the lighting and the in-camera visual effects to kind of sync and get back on page, on, on the same page. And uh, film just adds another layer to that yep. because then you're also the part of the politics of you're in, you're involved with the politics of dailies because it's not just like a digital file that you have seen on set together. There's going to be a step afterwards if you're working in film where a daily's let can be up, will be applied or you see the exposure, how it's really going to look because everything's guesswork until you get to that point. And um, those are political conversations to have with a DP or not have with a DP. Uh, how involved are you in that process? Uh, sometimes you're not allowed to be and you're kind of sidelined and you just have to make sure that you have all of the narrative around color documented. So that if any questions come up, you can at least tell somebody where to go from there. Well, so I don't want to talk too much. About no, no, it, but I was going to say crazy. it also brings up just the fact that people are working in different color spaces. I've, I've done virtual production on live broadcast and I don't think anyone took into consideration Rec 709 live broadcast feeds going into a linear color space uh, game engine. And then finding out that it actually all got approved by I know Rec twenty twenty LUT months ago. So that's there's we're never gonna look the same. Do we take a shot at Rec seven oh nine? Seven oh nine. So next on our list, camera data, hot or not. Oh, I Easy. love this one. So, so hot right now. What do we mean by camera data? What is the in demand right now? I mean, I think it's all of it from the lens data to the camera position to uh, tracking everything. We even had a tool on set for the last production that Catherine and I were on that would track uh, everything from the slate to the position of the camera to the lens to the position in Unreal to the raw files that we were getting from the Red Spy to uh, put it all packaged together with a recording of the backplate of Unreal in a nice little Excel sheet for us. And it was amazing because yeah. then the production months later was like, do you guys have this camera data? And we were like, actually, we do. And actually, uh, these shots weren't shot on our wall. 
they were shot at the physical set at a completely different location that you guys said we fucked up and we didn't because we had that camera data. So it's very hot right now. Like you can't, you can't argue with the numbers. Well, and, and to that point, anybody who's planning to get that data, you know, having a visual effects background, um, as a, as a coordinator, you know, you have a long time to kind of get the shot data and like enter it into like shotgun or a database. And that's somebody's job, really. It's not usually automated and it takes a long time to organize all of that. But if you think about getting that data from, okay, we wrapped, you know, to accurately getting everything on the page and then submitting it to somebody you have to put a lot of thought into that process. And how do we tee somebody up? Because it's going to be somebody's job. How do we tee them up to collect all that information in three hours, not a week, or one hour? Because they've already worked 10 hours that day and they've got to go home at a reasonable hour. So just throwing that out there for anybody else who's like on that side of things, you got to think through those workflows. I'd say if there are any scripties in the crowd, uh, love your notes can't read them for shit that's why you use a computer now. <laughs> yeah yeah so having a computer that's recording that data just makes the the human reliance on making sure you tracked which lens we're on or like mm-hmm. what were our focal point distances that we were trying to grab so yeah we're, we're basically stepping on the second ac's t- uh, toes right now where all these mm-hmm. camera reports the the uh, camera teams are doing you just suddenly go could i just borrow that for a second 100%. just want to double check a few things and then you just copy it all down and put it in a note on shotgun yeah i always have, i always have somebody on slate i'm like don't talk to the ac we're gonna get their data we're gonna get our data we're gonna cross that check the data mm-hmm we're just going to make sure that yeah. we've got but, everything. But having a good relationship with like the camera ops so you can be like, hey, oh, we really need to thing. plug in our like red spy to the Ethernet that you unplugged when you were switching the lens. Can you can we just plug this in real quick or we aren't going to get any camera data? Yeah. Like those it, precious seconds in between takes are like ride or die. Is it just me or as virtual production, you always feel like the kid who's moving to the new school halfway through the school year? Yeah. Like you just always are showing up having to make friends on the production that's already been two months into it. And then suddenly you're asking for things like, hey, can we add this extra wire to the camera? And it they won't just bother you at all. Like, ah, I guess. And it's like, but it's really important for the camera data, please. All right. Let's get offset. Virtual scouting. Hot Ooh. or not. Ready. Oh, okay. <laughs> three, I'm, two, one. Show. Oh, yeah. And by virtual scouting, the the Wait, if it's 2018, then not hot. Yeah. If it's 2023, then hot. Yeah. yeah. For me, I still give the pitch as if you've ever played Sims, we're just playing Sims, but with the assets for the production. So with virtual scouting, it, at least since that's what I've been doing the last year, it's basically, are we the only time that everyone sees what everyone else is doing in their silos? Because suddenly the... Even if we're there as the VFX under the VFX department, why is it the art department and camera department that are talking to us more than the VFX when it comes to scouting? Yes, absolutely. We I think we work with the art department even more than VFX, if anything. Like we are hand in hand from that previs step Mm. to the virtual scouting to being on set to helping them like with their tech viz. Like if anything, yeah. I think. Well, and I also think a lot of it has to do with like visual effects onset supervisors knowing that everything's going to change for them on set. So even if they planned certain things, they're like, I won't know until the day. <laughs> but, 
I think we, yeah, we've seen a resurgence or not resurgence. We've seen a huge growth in virtual art departments and virtual scouts really serve as the like prime mechanism where uh, someone from the production, whether it's production designer or director gets to interface with that content directly at scale. Uh, you, it's very hard to know when you're looking at a 2d screen, what the sense of scale is of some of these environments. And then we now have techniques to bring that on set with AR to be able to say, all right, we've rented this soundstage before we start paying like $80,000 a day. Uh, can we have a feel for what our physical like set build is going to look like inside this soundstage and finding out ahead of time that you won't be able to shoot that balcony shot inside the soundstage is worth every penny. All right. Next on the list, simulcam hot or not in 2023. Let's see it. One, two, three. I'm saying not hot. No. I also fence fences. Yeah. Why? And also simulcam. Who's got a good pitch for this? Because I still just say who framed Roger Rabbit, but with live action CG element. I mean, the pitch. I feel like the the strongest pitch for it is if you're doing like an Avatar or a Jungle Book or a Lion King, where it's like an integral part of the process, and you need it, and you need to be able to do the live compositing and now live depth compositing. Um, or, you know, if you're an independent filmmaker and you can't afford an LED wall and you want to use a green screen, but you want your DP and your director to be able to light the subject the same way. Useful. But it can be, I think people can expect more from it than it gives. And I'm going to say useful for the director and no one else on set. Because <laughs> Simulcam is essentially going to be a composite and you need to be able to get that visual to everybody else. You already have a built-in latency from trying to do the real-time composite. And so it's a hard, hard technical problem to bring that latency down and also make it visible or experiential to everybody else. With LED walls, you now have the ability for the actor to turn around their shoulder and see what's happening. So capturing it in camera in some ways is is breaking down the need to have simulcam. And because, again, simulcam, simulcam is great for the people who can see it, but not everyone can see it. Yeah, so I'll just throw in my hot just to be adversarial because it is all we're doing in live broadcast. Live broadcast is inherently now just become simulcam if it's using Game Engine because all we're doing is using either working with NCAM, Stipe, uh, Moses, and we're just doing live compositing either for the news, for the weather channel, fantastic work we did with, uh, putting fake uh, audiences in the MLB stands. You're all welcome, America. <laughs> but, um, you know, oh, this is... Basically, live broadcast has become simulcam with Game Engine at this point. With that said, we're allowed to disagree, by the way. <laughs> Pre-visualization. Hot or not in 2023? Go. So hot. So hot. I, I have a specific. So hot in the Game Engine. Yeah. Yeah. So hot in the Game so Engine. So hot in the Game Engine, especially if you're going to be on a wall. Like, yes, you're in the Game Engine. You're using a lot of these bad assets and then, okay, you, you're going to go to a wall. Great. They're already engine optimized. They're already engine approved. It's not like going back to the art department, getting back a new model that has like every screw modeled that we have to decimate all the polygons anyway and retopo and then spend a week on. It's like, oh, we already had it at Previs. Why don't you just keep going? Have you yeah. been getting rhino files? <laughs> 
That's the yeah. best thing ever to hear the bad no, team. The bad team recently was like, it's really just nerves. Everything is just nerves. I can't. I just heard I a yell from the a room next door, and it was a rhino file from the art department that got uh, delivered. And the guy just was like, I don't know what to do, man. I just don't, <laughs> don't even know anymore. what to do with this. Yes. So I, I think it's so hot. Game engine all the way. But uh, Yeah, I think that any time you're trying to do something that is going to be even reasonably involved the the lift to get previs into game engine now is like uh, so much more shallow than it used to be and the ability to do you know some of the cutting edge stuff that epic is adding in where we have the ability to do animation inside the engine and just the ability to do uh, some of the lighting context like we've been able to throw previs on some of these stages Mm -hmm. just to get a feel for how the camera is going to be expected to move and you can pretty quickly figure out, is it going to, like, where can we optimize, right? Where, what is actually our shooting range from this environment? And where can we start to basically cut corners to save time? Just a segue. Tech fizz. Hot or not in 2023? Let's see easy, it. Easy, hot. Very hot. What so do we mean hot. by tech fizz? Who wants to answer that? Maybe a CTO? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So <laughs> TechViz is, is a technical breakdown of what we have designed, usually in a pre-visualization stage. But we are trying to reduce the complexity of what we're doing and translate it to all of the like rigging team and all of the camera team. So we're giving them accurate numbers of where do cameras need to be at specific times. And we're able to give them that usually in kind of what you can see here, which is just like a one sheet from different dimensions of what you're going to expect to see on the day of the shoot. There is a lot of creative pie in the sky thinking when they're, when we're in that previous stage, but at some point you have to bring it down to earth and you have to get someone on hands with a camera and knowing how to practically get to that point, I think is where you save a lot of your money. We also work with the production team, the art, art department on building the set where they're like, Hey, how close does this piece need to be to the wall for it not to create more for than the camera like to get these certain shots it's like okay well you have to place it exactly at this centimeter distance because of unreal everything's metric and then you have to convert it for to feet inches because the art department's like you just gave me everything in metric please switch it for me and then you spend you know another three hours going through all of your tech tech list to converting everything yeah always the highlight of my day too i know yeah no it's a great tool to have in your toolkit um, and it's kind of one of the most fun things, I think, for a cinematographer even because, um, you know, a lot of your shot blocking does have to do with, you know, that's the space. And if you can place cameras roughly with the director for how you'd like to cover the action, then you can invite other specialties into that conversation like stunts. Can you drop lines here? Well, we can, but the like costume that that person's in is like so big we're gonna have to design this other thing um we kind of knew that but now that we're seeing this together now that we see it through a lens not just in a plot um it becomes this really great iteration process very quickly um and you can do it all the way up until the shoot day and i think that's something that sometimes directors and dps don't realize is that when you have a virtual production department on your side um then you can have, it's like having this extra team that's helping you prep constantly until you get there. It's not like, oh, we had a a tech meeting. Everyone's going to go away. And like a week later, the same plan's going to be in place. And then we'll find out all this stuff when we do our our scout the day before and then shoot it. Um, 
you can literally have this stealth team there like continuously answering questions for any department um, and helping with the communication around that. So it's just unusual. Like uh, if you don't have a virtual production team, you don't have access to that necessarily, but when you do, it's just makes everyone stronger. Well, then we're, I think we have one more. Let me see. If not though. Yeah. Mocap hot or not for 2023. Let's hear it. Hot. Mocap's pretty hot. Mocap's been hot. Yeah. yeah. So that one's sticking around. I I think I'm going to try to give us, since we know half the people in the room and we want to have a fiery a Q&A, oh. I think we're going to try to jump to Q&A. So I want to just speed through here and ask, biggest wins and biggest fails of the year? Which also, yeah. for the record, we were going to do as a, a Never Have I Ever initially, where it's going to be Never Have I Ever Lost an Entire Perforce uh, Server on a Shoot. <laughs> So let's start with uh, anyone want to share some of their biggest uh, fails, biggest wins for the last year? Yeah, you want me to start? So, uh, I mean, it's definitely more fun, I think, to talk about the fails after the fact. Uh, yeah, I would say one of the biggest wins was um, it wasn't me specifically, but it was a, a close friend at the third floor, Casey Schatz, who worked on Way of Water. And he was able to use this like, basically re rigged cable cam system to be able to get the uh, a screen mounted to it so you could have the target actor's face projected onto this and you could basically have that eye line and it's moving through the cable cam system and so as you're walking uh you've got this screen that's just floating next to your head and tracking the eye line is just a beautiful system if you guys haven't seen it but i think one of the huge achievements of the last year um biggest fails yeah, we lost a perforce server. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it, yeah, particularly bad because we. I think the perforce problem. Uh, if hopefully some of you guys know what perforce is, but it's just a way of uh, storing a lot of these three D assets and sharing them across different companies. But one of the challenges is that we, as we have more game engine content earlier on the, in the production cycle, we have the pre production teams having ownership over that perforce server but at some point pre-production does roll off of the project and if the perforce server is needed by the stage team and potentially by the vfx team somebody needs to be responsible for it and uh yeah we've had unfortunate scenarios where we just lost it (laughs) and the system administrator could not be reached and I don't think we ever found it. So we restored it onto a new Perforce server using uh, workspaces. I will not name names of who was involved in this project. Who else wants to share a good war story? I'll, I'll do a, a hot and, and then a not. Um, my hot, uh, getting to see directors really adopt this process. Like for some of these people, they've been in the business for like, 50, 60 years, they're in their 70s. And then seeing them like have a whole like virtual production setup in their basement over over COVID and then like calling us being like, I can't do it any other way. I can't, I can't do it 2D anymore. Like, fuck that shit. I'm only gonna do it in engine from now on, or directors who are like, hey, uh, art department, like uh, you're gonna you're gonna come in and you're all gonna put on headsets and we're gonna explore this space together uh, because this is how how I enjoy doing it. Like they've just taken the tools and have 
adopted them and then on set they're just like where's my my headset so I can really see it and they they show so much enthusiasm that I'm like yay um yeah so and then um my I guess fail is also a hot where um we did a production in New York where our server was in a uh like a like a trailer almost so like a metal box in the middle of New York summer heat where the air conditioning failed and we um almost lost all of our CPUs we lost one of them and uh all of a sudden we were like oh and this was on a pre-light day shoot day it was like a, a oh it was a prep day and so yeah the director was there everyone was there and we were like okay time to turn on the wall <laughs> oh no nothing's working all of our machines are overheating and uh cpus are melting all over the place uh what do we do so luckily we only lost one but then uh after that we didn't have any more backups you forgot about that day it's <laughs> like i still have nightmares yeah so that was my uh my, my our fail we eventually recovered but uh yeah that was a very stressful very stressful day that was stressful that was very stressful <laughs> Um, yeah. So you'll probably relate to this one too, but I, I'd say like, it wasn't, it's not so much a fail, but it was like a really good learning. Um, we had the ability, like one of the vendors that we were working with an engineering team that was providing the panels had a ton of extra panels and there was, it was for specific use cases, but kind of it was a good learning experience about how to control the information with production and DPs and other creative department heads about what panels were fair use or not, because it's not just increasing scope when they add more like VAD work or like creative things inside the engine. If in this case, the DP knew that we had extra panels and would go through their protocol of telling the gaffer that they were going to start raising more, like creating more ceiling panels in the volume. And we would find out just because we lived on set, but we wouldn't find out necessarily through the camera department that that was happening. And we didn't necessarily have a production person that understood at the time that they, we just needed to have a lot of more two-way conversations about that stuff. But what they didn't realize and that we ended up having to overly communicate was that that whole wall was an ecosystem. And so every time a new panel was introduced, we definitely had a go-getter team of engineers that was like ready to solve all the problems that came with that and like redo all the in-display render nodes and like make sure that mathematically everything was going to be okay. And then we got to a point where the team was telling me we're at a breaking point. Like some of the stuff that we're going, that are, that is failing in our system is just because we're adding more panels. Um, so that those were some crazy times on our set too, but I was really glad that we figured that out. And then we were able to kind of set some boundaries with production because just by saying, this is the amount of tech that we can use to have a stable ecosystem, um, you know, to, and then to go into more detail on that, like sometimes also if you increase the amount of panels and have to redo how the graphics cards and CPUs are handling them, it also can tank the frame rate or unreal. So like a lot of things start failing and then it's hard to diagnose the issue, which is what we were experiencing. So that's kind of like a hot nut. It wasn't hot while it was happening, but we figured it out. 
and mo pa- mo people panels, understood mo problems mo panels will problems. oh yeah that's we're gonna make a t-shirt of that one later. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. All right, guys, let's get into some Q&A because we can just jump back to questions if y'all are shy. But someone jump yes. up and ask a hard-hitting question, please. Blast it. Yeah, buddy. Hi. Oh, we need that? a mic over here. I don't need it. Project. Let's hear the theater uh, training. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Um, I'm curious, given modern virtual production tools, how much needs to happen with everybody in the same physical location versus how much can be done using multiplayer technology? So much multiplayer, so much. Uh, A lot of our prep was, you know, during COVID. So we're doing everything separate online. Like uh, for uh, Love, Death, and Robots, that was during the pandemic. Everyone was remote. All through it, all through Engine. And has that stayed true? Um. For the most part, though, there are some times, especially on stages, where you all have to be together because it's a physical production with actors and cameras and stuff. But a lot of the prep can happen remotely. There's just for like a real world example, uh, we're working on a project right now where the director is in San Francisco. The DP is doing pre-lighting in London Mm -hmm. and they're able to join a multi-user session. They're they're able to connect the stage to uh, an office in London so that they can actually have a lot of this communication traveling back and forth. So I think, yeah, like multi-user remote workflows is, it's hot, baby. But also I think it comes down to the personalities that you're working with and their uh, comfort level with the tech. So for example, if you're working with somebody who's not as familiar with the tech and can't set it up by themselves and you're trying to do a VR session and they're like in London, but your team's in LA, then you don't have anyone who can go to their office and like set it up for them. I think especially when you're doing like VR sessions, something that I've been learning is like actually everyone being in the same room for that is way less abstract for people. It's hard anyway. Um, I think even with limited tools that you have for sharing inside of the, inside of that like VR headset together, um, it's a big engineering feat just to have a DP look at the same image as the director inside of one of those spaces. So at least from a VR virtual scouting perspective, that still feels like a very in-person thing for the most part, unless you are working one-on-one with a creative. If you got the AD and everybody in a room, that's like a very directed session that you need to have. I will say though, as much as it's a big piece on working with the creatives who aren't used to this technology, the times we forced our devs and all the actual uh, te- you know, like uh, technical directors and technical artists to be in the same room, we've probably executed 10 times more than we did working remotely. And it's not that anyone wanted to be in the room. It's that there's just too much that you pick up by being next to someone and being in the same room and standing next to like the coffee machine that gets you to have that like cross-pollination of all the departments. Next up. Alright, hey, how you guys doing? I'm
That was literally, we were like, oh, let's add a bunch of sections. And then we realized our talk was like an hour and a half. And we were like, we need to cut sections. We were talking too much. But I was like, oh, we should have a section on what assets or what marketplace things or what do we, what do we think we use the yeah. most? And for me, it's like, for your specific question, uh, very much just start making stuff in Unreal. So learn sequencer. Uh, assets that will help everybody is Ultra Dynamic Sky. Love that. Brushify for environments, super, super great high fidelity stuff. Um, learn MetaHuman and Control Rig, and that'll help with your animation, animation blending, learning actually how to like do a lot of basics and and putting those all together to make a short. There's uh, So Kitbash also has competitions that they run every couple months, mm -hmm. and you can get uh, kitbash3d.com. Uh, they run like a Twitch stream, a, a like mega competition where they give free assets to uh, creatives who want to explore. And you can grab that pack of assets free of charge and start to explore creating a story in, the, in that world. And then I would say even from like a career path perspective too, um, the really exciting thing about virtual production this year is that we've just had a bit of a boom in the community where a lot of there are just a lot of smaller businesses that are now mid-sized companies that have really strong pipelines in virtual production in different areas of interest, right? So you could work at a visualization company like Third Floor, Halon, Proof. There's like a bunch of them. And uh, you could work with uh, their network of directors and DPs, um, like learn how to build environments, how to do blocking, how to use the tools that CAT and Marcus are talking about in a professional setting, kind of do all the Olympic training that you need to do and get out of the like employee mindset uh, of in filmmaking and be like, I just want to work with directors and kind of be on call because it's the creative process. So kind of, you can kind of like build chops that way. That's a great entry point. And then there are other companies now in the last two or three years, a lot concentrated in Los Angeles, but now in Vancouver, London, starting in Australia. There's real uh, global expansion for end-to-end -end virtual production studios. So Eyeline Studios at Netflix is end-to-end -end, uh, virtual production. I would say Magnopus is end-to-end. -end. Mm -hmm. um, we do also have internships. Yeah, Net Studios is end-to-end. Um, if you're really excited about R&D and kind of coming in just from that problem solving standpoint, like what about Epic Games, like special projects team? There are a lot of tech companies that have special projects teams that are supporting companies like Magnopus or Third Floor or others that um, are kind of more on the engineering sort of crossover tech side Ooh, also that do, also do creative. Also do competitions. Yeah, yeah the competitions are where the, where it's at. And I, I think one thing just to mention, though, the, you're trying to stand out. Ha understanding film vernacular will probably make you stand out from 95% of everyone else because the biggest issue you're going to have is if the creative comes into the room, no one's going to let that creative speak to the person on the box because they're not going to assume that they can speak the same language. If they're queuing up a shot and they want a French over on this one versus a cowboy shot, and with they are starting to discuss using specific like for, uh, film techniques, that's usually going to be the biggest divide where you will have some of the best devs all coming from the gaming industry and being completely clueless to the slang that's going to be used on set for this. And so no matter how green you are in terms of the actual real-time technology, 
just having an understanding of how to speak to a gaffer, cinematographer, and director will be worth its weight in gold. Next up. Hello. Oh, now it works. Sweet. Hi, my name is Daniel. I'm actually a student also. I go to UT Austin. Um, I'm actually studying radio, television, film. Um, last semester, we actually took a class on virtual production. And for the first time in that class, we were able to use a LED wall. Um, so I kind of like conceptualized. I did a Vespa commercial and like did everything on Unreal, learned motion rig and like really fell in love with the process. And like I'm a senior and I'm getting kind of close to graduation. And I was just curious, like what advice would you give someone trying to make that jump from because I really am fascinated with like overseeing everything and maybe supervising from start to finish. And I find myself mostly just doing a lot of PA gigs and like internships. So I was just curious, like any advice you'll have for making a jump maybe from like PA to like junior producer or like junior production supervisor or coordinator? I guess some of it has to do with how you present yourself and your reel and your resume. Um, as soon as, so it's like the closer that you're going to get into like jumping into an artist position and starting to have like a real or sometimes creative experience or technical experience with that role. And it, and it's never going to go away. So even though that's what you're facing now, every time you want to jump in your career, you have to kind of make the same analysis. But um, that would be the thing. Like I would say, if you can gain experience, like the more experience that you have, um, like creatively and like doing your own projects or like and one other strategy might be uh, like when you feel like you're ready to go to the next thing, if somebody isn't seeing your potential at your company, there are lots of other companies that do something similar. So then maybe just try interviewing with a couple other companies and then you know, don't quit your job first, but start that interview process. And then those interviews might reflect back to you what skills that they're looking for or you're missing. Um, I know that sounds kind of abstract, but that helps. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. And just one thing to mention is you can be just extremely patient because I don't think we work with anyone we haven't worked with over the last 10 years and they've just changed job titles 20 times. Hi, uh, I'm also a student. I'm here from Colorado State University. And I was, uh, I'm actually here on a class trip, um, like some, it's, we're getting professional conference experience. So I'm here with the classmates and our professor, um, and we're looking into, um, potential like, uh, like filmmaking grants or, um, opportunities and technology that we could bring back to the university. Um, so I'm just asking about what, uh, is out there so that we can bring virtual production back to our studio, um, on campus. There's a there's actually a new company called Magic Box that's going to be debuting their technology at NAB this year. Um, but they basically figured out a way in like a semi truck to put an entire like LED wall and brain bar that unfolds out into this like stage, basically, that's either light contained. You can roll it into an existing stage or have it in a parking lot. But it's got the full ecosystem, so that might be a way to bring a stage and an experienced crew to the university if you can't get anyone to travel somewhere else. Um, I don't know. That's like just one off-the-wall idea for bringing the tech to you. Five Mars system. Unreal Engine. 
that's really all you need for camera tracking and, and a lot of the previs stuff. So th those two systems, I think Mars is about $700 right now. Epic is free. And then they have mega grants. Uh, I think they have a specific category for students and schools. So that. Also, also Unity has stuff. Yeah, I, I would say look at look at some of what's happening with markerless mo motion capture is like a good technology area. So uh, Move AI is kind of one of the more popular companies in this area, but it gets away from needing a you know five thousand dollar motion capture stage. You can start to do things just with a mobile device using AR kit or just using any type of like standard cameras, and you can start to explore you know what does it feel like to just get that animation in. Oftentimes that animation barrier is pretty extreme for wanting to do production. And I just think Markerless MoCap has, yeah, really done a good job of that. One specific thing with Move AI, you do need six camera array to get the best fidelity. Yeah. And then also all of them need to be the same type of device. So you either have six iPads or six iPhones. We literally just ran into this two weeks ago. And I was like, they don't they don't mention that anywhere on their website. <laughs> Hello. One thing worth mentioning is if you're at the university, like a good thing to try to play around with is just seeing what departments are already getting grants to do these things. Because, for instance, I went <clears throat> I went to USC, and I think we were uh, a bit spoiled by the amount of technology we had. But you know, at the uh, psychology department, they're doing full VR tests with uh, people for treatment of PTSD. They're they're doing entire uh, pieces with Paul DeBevic over uh, volumetric capture of humans. And so the question is, are there also maybe better collaborations within your university in order to get this money? Because like, if you talk to the European universities, they're the ones who have all the LED walls. They're the ones who have all the volumetric capture because they're all getting grants to do this as part of education. Thank you. No one's kicking us out, so let's just keep going. <laughs> Hello, guys. Uh, I feel so envious because the other fellows that preceded me, um, they are starting, right? And I feel like I'm on the end of my career. And the world that you guys are uncovering is so fascinating. It's it's all being seems to be invented now. So I guess my question is, uh, how do you see uh, AI playing a role? Because uh, it seems to me that you know. Uh, it seems to me that there, there are silos of knowledge on the filmmaking, and that you guys have a lot of intersections between the silos, and it's so much very technical that you know, not at, at this point, I believe uh, uh, one person has all this very deep knowledge that's needed, and 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 then AI, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll just throw an idea that I heard from. Kevin Kelly yesterday on his on his presentation that maybe AI is this new alien life form that we're gonna have besides us as some some sort of um, some sort of um, advisor. So how do you see AI playing on integrating all this you know huge world that you guys are uncovering? Uh, yeah, I'm, I think that there's both the very scary side of AI and the very exciting side of AI. And I mean, the scary side of things is what we usually think of, which is job replacement and the ability that someone's existing skills are just outpaced by an AI. But I think there is a really exciting part of it, which is completely centered around language translation. And I think ILM did a talk at SIGGRAPH last year where they showcased how this could work really well 
they have a massive library of something like 10,000 skies that they've captured over the course of like 15 years. And it was uh, inaccessible for most cinematographers because the people who had tagged that were all like digital matte painting artists. And they were saying like, oh, we're tagging with this galaxy or we're tagging with this constellation where a DP was or a cinematographer was trying to find something that was just a little bit gloomy or a little bit moody. And there was no translation for terminology that they were going to use. They had an AI pick up uh, natural language processing and then process through all the images and start to basically do comparison validations against terminology that was being used. So I think access to digital content through your own vocabulary is going to be one of the most exciting things. So I think it's going to help, uh, again, like make it more accessible for a lot of filmmakers to engage with digital content going forward. Yes. I really like the AI question, especially when it comes to like shaders and like art style and like figuring out how to then use AI as sort of like a plugin. So it's just, it's adding to your work where you can go faster, where it's like, okay, I have to clean up mocap animation. That takes forever. No artist wants to do that. But if you have an AI that's trained on like a walk cycle, they can clean up your actor's like walk cycle or just in general mocap data, which is something where it's like, it's very exciting. So all of the, I'm hoping that all of the tedious steps of production can then be handled by these AIs that we're training to just do that essentially like busy work for us so that we can focus more on those creative decisions uh, that uh, that actually make virtual production and creating a, a film or whatever. You see, Kat, it, this, is, this is precisely what Kevin Kelly was suggesting yesterday because, you know, if, uh, if I look to the four of you, with your specialities, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of imagine AI as amplifying your knowledge, amplifying, but not, not just the mechanical tasks, not just, but going beyond, you know, also on your creative side, you know, you know it, how could it amplify your, not just your time, but going beyond that? Yeah, oh, maybe we, we can chill in the side to talk more about that as well, because I think it's a great question. I just want to make sure you get a chance to have yours as well. Thanks, first of all, for uh, guiding us through this. So I'm coming from classic commercial production. I'm coming from Germany. I'm a TV producer. And so um, I just wondered if you could give me some insight on the time frame because you all know like classic production as well, I guess. Mm -hmm. We only have like six weeks from concept to on air. So is there any chance to implement this or is it only for features? I mean, what I'm actually asking is the time you need to set up this, can you save it and post later? Because that's where we probably spend more post uh, time on editing and stuff. So what's about that? I mean, I feel like we should meet with you. Yeah, offline, we'll probably want to talk about to this. Answer, but yeah. generally speaking, that's the that's the scope question that you start with with every project, and it's kind of custom, honestly, based mm -hmm. on what the creative is and the technical parameters of the project. In like other words, like hang outside, and we'll all talk for a bit. But we'll find you. With that said, we're all kicked out. So thank you guys. <laughs> Appreciate y'all enjoying the morning with us and we'll talk to y'all later.